Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. History Hub is based at the University College Dublin School of History and Archives. For more information on our activities and to download many more podcasts, go to historyhub.ie. In this episode, part one of The Irish at Gallipoli, a six-part series recorded by Dr. Jeff Kilday, who was Keith Cameron Chair of Australian History at UCD in 2014. The Irish at Gallipoli, Episode 1, Background. In 1916, Michael McDonough wrote a book called The Irish at the Front, in which he declared, Gallipoli will ever be to the Irish race a place of glorious pride and sorrow. Alas, McDonough's bold prediction has not come to pass, and the Gallipoli campaign of 1915 and the part played by the Irish in it has largely faded from public memory in Ireland. This is in stark contrast to the manner in which in my country, Australia, and also in New Zealand, Gallipoli continues to resonate down the generations. Each year on the 25th of April, the anniversary of the beginning of the military phase of the Gallipoli campaign, tens of thousands of Australians and New Zealanders turn out in cities, towns and suburbs to attend commemoration services and to march or watch others march in honour of those who fell in that campaign and in all wars since in which their countries have participated. In Ireland, especially the 26 counties, the Gallipoli campaign is largely unknown and except for commemorations organised by Australians and New Zealanders living in Dublin, the anniversary of the landing at Gallipoli passes almost unmarked in Ireland, notwithstanding that about the same number of Irishmen as New Zealanders died there. For although the Irish were as gallant in battle as the Australians and New Zealanders, who came to be known as the Anzacs, the sacrifice of the Irish at Gallipoli in the Empire's cause was often portrayed at home as a betrayal of the Irish nation and its struggle for independence. In the words of the nationalist song The Foggy Dew, which commemorates those who died in the Easter Rising, it was better to die neath an Irish sky than at Suvla or Sedel Bar. In recent years, and in particular during the decade of commemorations, the Irish people have begun to rediscover the First World War, a war in which a grandfather or a great-uncle may have served, and in some cases, not returned. Although most of the fighting in which the Irish were engaged occurred in the trenches of the Western Front, for eight months in 1915 the Allies attempted to break the stalemate that had set in there by launching an attack on one of Germany's allies, Turkey, by landing at Gallipoli, a large invasion force that included thousands of Irishmen. In this series of podcasts, we will examine the part played by the Irish during the Gallipoli campaign, looking in particular at the landing on the 25th of April, the advance to Krithia between April and July, the August offensive, both at Anzac Cove, when Anzacs and Irishmen fought literally shoulder to shoulder, and at Suvla Bay, and finally, the evacuation. In this first episode, I will give an overview of the origins of the Gallipoli campaign and the events leading up to the landing. Following Turkey's entry into the war on the German side in October 1914, some on the British War Council had suggested an attack on Turkey as a means of breaking the stalemate which had come over the Western Front and of assisting Russia. Winston Churchill, the first Lord of the Admiralty, 
put forward a proposal to force the Dardanelles, the narrow waterway that connects the Mediterranean with the Sea of Marmara. From there, another narrow waterway, the Bosphorus, leads past Constantinople, now Istanbul, to the Black Sea and Russia. This sea route had been closed on Turkey's entry into the war. The aim of the plan was to enable a fleet to pass through the Dardanelles to the Sea of Marmara and stand off Constantinople to intimidate and, if necessary, to bombard the Turks into surrender. Success would reopen this all-year sea route, enabling the Allies to send supplies to Russia and the Russians to ship wheat to the Allies. In addition, Churchill reasoned that the neutral Balkan states, Greece, Romania and Bulgaria, would be inclined to join the Allies if Turkey were defeated. Apart from these military considerations, ever present in the background was the long-held imperial ambition of each of Britain, France and Russia to carve out for themselves a slice of the Ottoman Empire once Turkey had been defeated. As we now know, Britain's and France's ambitions in this regard were met in accordance with the Sykes-Picot Agreement, concluded between the two nations in May 1916 with the ascent of Russia. Initially, the Dardanelles campaign was conceived as a joint naval and military operation. To overcome the objections of the Secretary of State for War, Lord Kitchener, that British troops could not be spared from the Western Front, Churchill's plan involved the use of Greek troops. However, while the Greek government was then pro-British, King Constantine, who was married to the Kaiser's sister, was opposed to the proposal, and Greece declined to participate. The idea therefore languished until early January 1915, when Grand Duke Nicholas, supreme commander of the Russian forces and a cousin of the Tsar, appealed to Britain for a military demonstration to draw away the Turkish troops who were attacking his armies in the Caucasus. While Kitchener rejected the use of troops, he left open the possibility of a naval operation. Consequently, Churchill requested Vice Admiral Sackville Carden, commanding the British East Mediterranean Squadron, and a scion of an Anglo-Irish family from Tipperary, to prepare a plan for a naval operation against the Dardanelles. Carden came up with a plan to use battleships to knock out the forts and mobile batteries which guarded the Dardanelles, and trawlers to clear away the mines which the Turks had laid in the waterway. Within a short time, the idea of attacking the Dardanelles, which had been developed to relieve pressure on the Russians, assumed a life of its own for the Russians were able to defeat the Turks in the Caucasus without Allied help. The idea continued to attract support because there were those in the War Council who believed the stalemate on the Western Front could best be broken by a successful campaign in the East. They were called Easterners and included Winston Churchill and David Lloyd George. On the 28th of January 1915, the War Council formally adopted Churchill's proposal for a naval attack on the Dardanelles, while two weeks later a decision was made to send to the Greek island of Lemnos a military force, including a brigade of Australians who were then training in Egypt, to prepare for a possible landing on the Gallipoli Peninsula in support of the naval operation. The Dardanelles is about two miles wide at its mouth, widening to four miles at Erinkui Bay before narrowing to just over one mile near Chanakali at what is called the Narrows and which is overlooked by the Kilidbar Plateau. 
Forts lined both sides of the strait leading up to and just beyond the narrows with ten minefields laid across the strait. The location of the minefields was known to the British. However, an eleventh line of mines, parallel to the strait, was laid in secret after the naval operation began. It would have a devastating effect on its outcome. The naval bombardment of the forts began on the 19th of February 1915. A few months earlier, on the 3rd of November 1914, two days before Britain and France formally declared war on Turkey, British and French ships had fired on the forts at the mouth of the strait, achieving some success by detonating the magazine at Sedel Bar Fort at Cape Helles, thus inspiring confidence in the efficacy of a naval attack. However, in the main round, the Navy had only limited success. While a few forts were knocked out, some with the assistance of Marines who had been landed on shore, others remained operational. Forewarned by the attack in November, the Turks had spent the intervening period strengthening their defences, so that despite losing some forts, the remaining forts and the elusive Turkish mobile field batteries continued to prevent the minesweepers from clearing a path through the mines. By mid-March it was decided that the Navy should make an all-out attempt to force the Dardanelles. By then, Admiral Carden had been relieved from command due to illness and replaced by fellow Irishman Admiral John de Robeck. The date chosen was the 18th of March. It proved disastrous for the Allies and provided a great victory for Turkey. Not only did the Anglo-French fleet fail to knock out the forts and clear the mines, Three battleships were sunk by Turkish guns and mines, and three others badly damaged in the attempt. Hundreds of sailors were killed. Unbeknown to the Allies, the 11th minefield had been laid on the night of the 8th of March in Erinkui Bay, which the Allied ships used for turning. At least two of the battleships struck those mines, causing alarm and confusion. In an afternoon, the Allies lost more than a third of their strength. Instead of cancelling the campaign, given the failure of the naval operation and the Russian victories in the Caucasus, it was decided to press on with a military attack on the peninsula to knock out the forts from the landward side. The man appointed to command the expedition was Sir Ian Hamilton, a 62-year-old veteran of numerous campaigns in Afghanistan, South Africa and Egypt. At his command was a force of some 75,000 soldiers, comprising two divisions of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, whose initials ANZAC have now become the word ANZAC, used to describe Australian and New Zealand soldiers of the First World War. The British 29th Division, comprising regular soldiers recalled from the far reaches of the Empire, including three Irish battalions, the 1st Battalion Royal Dublin Fusiliers and the 1st Battalion Royal Inniskilling Fusiliers, both recalled from India, and the 1st Battalion Royal Munster Fusiliers, recalled from Burma. Hamilton's forces also included the 1st Division of the French Corps Expeditionnaire d'Orient, a mixture of French and French African colonial troops, and finally the Royal Naval Division, a military formation made up of naval personnel surplus to the requirements of the Royal Navy. In late April 1915, Hamilton's forces began to assemble in Mudros Harbour on the island of Lemnos, 
awaiting the order to launch the invasion. In the next episode, we will look at the landing at Gallipoli on the 25th of April and the Turkish resistance to it.